Shall we pray together? Father, I ask for your help now as I try to unfold the topic of preaching justification undiminished. When we say that we walk by faith and not by sight, there are massive realities that this faith sees in the Scripture. And oh, how we need to have the eyes of our heart illumined. And so I ask for your help so that as I do my best to explain what is in the Word, you would open our heart's eyes to see the glory of it. And then know how to preach it and live it and counsel it and apply it in our marriages and parenting and workplaces. So God, come, please, and grant your assistance. Don't leave me to myself. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So that's my topic, preaching the doctrine of justification from the Scriptures in an undiminished way. And I have, for now about ten years, been very exercised about this. And I'd like to begin by giving you maybe five reasons for why this has, I think, in the last ten years been the doctrine that has most consumed me. That wasn't always the case, but it has been the case for for these years, and I want to explain, explain why, and perhaps in the process alert you to things that are going on that you may not know about, and thus uh, strengthen you to deal with them should they blow your way, and be positive and constructive so that we glory in this doctrine and don't just hear about its controverted nature. One of the reasons is that eight of those years, I was preaching through the book of Romans. And when you preach through the book of Romans, you bump into the doctrine of justification (laughs) again and again, and then it's applied for you, and so... I lived in Romans for for eight years, and that has a certain effect on what becomes prominent in your thinking. Second, I am surrounded at Bethlehem by um, apprentices and young men in our little institute who read more than I do, they're smarter than I am, and they ask many hard questions, especially about cutting-edge issues that they're reading about, and I'm not. And you can only sit on the fence for so long in dealing with things like that, and, and then you have to give yourself to the one you think is the most important, and, and I have been drawn into this issue. Third reason why it has been so prominent is that it is increasingly embattled in our day, sadly the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It is being confused and reduced and contradicted 
Let me list, let me list some of the ways. Number one, <clears throat> the lines between evangelical faith and Roman Catholic doctrine are being blurred big time. I could give so many illustrations, some of them coming very close to home. I think the Reformation was necessary, and I don't think it's over. And I think the lines between historic, never-abandoned Roman understanding of justification and the Reformers, the Protestants, me, are very, very significant and not blurring. Number two, second way it's being challenged. The doctrine of the imputation of Christ's righteousness is being flat out denied by evangelicals. Two articles in Books and Culture, I don't know, five or six years ago, I forget how long now, simply blew me away. I mean, I just was so naive that, number one, that this person would think this, just said it is not a biblical doctrine, just stop talking about it. The doctrine of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ as part of our understanding of justification. And that they would publish it. I mean, this is a book review. This is not a platform for... So I, I was just ticked off. <laughs> and wrote a book in response to those two articles. <laughs> called Counted Righteous in Christ. Number three, the new perspective on Paul, especially N.T. Wright has redrawn the map of New Testament theology in such a way that confusion is very widespread concerning what justification is and how it relates to gospel, conversion, judgment in the future. The waters are very muddy for young men today in seminary. Amazingly muddy where they are reading broadly in these things and being thrown off their balance. A fourth illustration is that um, the fruits of faith and faith are being merged so that the historic by faith alone is losing its meaning. By what alone? Faithfulness equals faith. And what we once thought was fruit from faith in that finished is now not the instrument that's uniting us to Christ, re resulting in that fruit, but that fruit is now merging with the instrument of faith itself that unites us to Christ. So that faithfulness, a life lived, is now the instrument by which we are justified and it's so muddy. It, it, can we make the distinction between faith and its, and its fruit? Many would be saying, no, no. Another last example would be that the term righteousness, righteousness of God and righteousness, which we are in Christ, is being given meanings that historically it never had and are is throwing people off guard. So um, the righteousness of God would be very typically today considered to be the faithfulness of God. Covenant faithfulness of God. 
And once you see everything in that category, the old categories begin to crumble because you can't talk in the same way. Or if I say I have been counted righteous in Christ and righteousness means only verdict in a courtroom rather than the actual lived out obedience of another counted as mine, then you've denied the historic imputation of that obedience as mine, and I don't need it because all I need is a verdict. So those are five illustrations of that are all over the place for those who are reading on the edges, the cutting edges of what's being done in our seminaries and schools and, and many, many churches. And many of the representatives of these uh, reconstructions are very compelling writers and very winsome people. So that is a third reason why I've been occupied with this, because there's so many different ways that the doctrine itself has been challenged. Uh, a fourth reason it's held my attention is that I relate to this truth of justification by faith understood in terms of the imputation to us of the righteousness that Christ perfectly lived out very personally. I love this doctrine. I live on this doctrine. This doctrine feels to me not only principially saving, it feels desperately saving. It feels daily saving. It feels grabbing me in the midst of the darkest night saving. It feels taking hold of me in the swell of a overactive conscience saving. I'm not playing games here doctrinally. I'm not eager to write or preach because it's the thing to talk about. I'm a fragile human being. I feel myself on the brink of eternity regularly. And I always feel unworthy of it. And uh, my conscience is always telling me I cannot measure up. Which, of course, is a good thing if you have a line to hold on to of another sort, then my faithfulness will really work it all out. I feel very much in identification with John Bunyan. John Bunyan, in his mid-twenties, as you know, was struggling tremendously with his own standing with the Lord, and he tells the story, I'll just read it to you, of, of how God broke in to get him beyond uncertainty to assurance. And, and of course, you know what that assurance led to, uh, imprisonments and great sacrifices and, and a great book. One day, as I was passing into the field, this sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And methought with all, I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ standing at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. So that 
wherever I was or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks righteousness, he lacks my righteousness, for that was just in front of him there. I also saw, moreover, <coughs> that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame of heart that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and irons. My temptations also fled away so that from that time those dreadful scriptures of God and what he has in mind there are, are the texts like about Esau who, who cried out for, for repentance and couldn't find it. He called that a dreadful text. From that time, those dreadful scriptures of God left off to trouble me. Now went I home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. I have known this. This is sweet to me. To, to have the assurance that I need a perfect righteousness to stand before an all-holy God. And I don't have it in myself. Therefore, I must have it from another and it must be counted as mine, not me measure up a little bit so I provide a little part of it. It just must be totally counted as mine as I rest in it. And if that is taken away from me, no matter how hard these fellows try to tell me they're putting in place something just as good, I don't think so. And I will try to explain some of what they try to put in its, in its place. Now, I'm aware that at this very point, this fourth reason for why I'm so worked up about this, namely that it's precious to me, for many disqualifies me from being a careful, objective, faithful exegete. Because uh, if, if you so desperately want this to be true, you're just going to find it. You're going to go to the Bible and find it. You're, you are so absolutely sold out. You are, you've got so much riding on this, you can't be a faithful exegete anymore. What do you do with that? Well, that may be true that I'm so sold out to it, I can't not see it even when it may not be there, that may be true. But there is another way to look at it, isn't there? A passion for a particular truth may be not a blinding passion, but an eye-opening passion. At least I want to make sure the ground is level here before the accusations fly lopsidedly. Let me read you a passage of Scripture where I'm getting this idea that, that a, a craving for a truth might be the means by which you see it, not the means by which you create it when it's not there. Listen to John chapter 7, verse 17. If anyone wills, 
or desires or wants, thele. If anyone wills to do God's will, he will know whether this teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Now, what does that mean? That means at least that sometimes the ability to know something is there and to embrace it is because you want it so bad. That's what Jesus said. A will that is moving with God can see things in the Bible that those who are vaunting a distance, dispassionate, disinterested objectivity may be totally blind to. So I'm not too swayed by this. I am made cautious by it. That I must constantly submit my brain to this book over and over again, lest I create out of my own head things that aren't there. But as I look at the lay of the land and read church history, this book is as often and more often misinterpreted by those who don't come craving what's here, but in deep rebellion against what's here postured as academic objectivity and distance from it. I would rather run that risk. So, could be. But the person who makes that accusation, I'm just coming to come back and saying, your position of neutrality and distance and cool objectivity is as dangerous as my passion for this. Let's just both acknowledge that and then go to the text. <laughs> so that's where we're gonna, going to go. So we've got four reasons now so far why I've gotten worked up about this. One is that I preached through Romans for eight years. A second is that I have these guys around me constantly asking hard questions questions and making observations and third that there are these all these ways of it's being reconstructed today and then the fourth is that I I need it so badly now here's the last one and then we leap into some biblical teaching on it um, I've left I've left the most important one for last the main reason why I would, I would give myself up to this in view of the, the mission statement of my life, which is to spread a passion for the supremacy of God in all things, for the joy of all peoples. So I, I put everything through the sieve of, will this help me spread a passion for the supremacy of God through Jesus Christ? So... And, and you might want to open your Bibles at this point to Philippians chapter 1. Because you need to see, um, and then we'll start flowing into chapter 2 and 3, which is where we'll hit justification. But, but I 
My biggest passion in life is to exalt Jesus Christ. With my life and the way I live, with my words, with what I write, I want Him to look great. I don't want to be involved in anything that minimizes or diminishes Christ. That's where I'm getting this word diminish in my title. Preaching justification undiminished. And what I mean there is preaching justification in a way that it doesn't diminish the work of Christ. If Christ has not only become my punishment, but also has become my perfection. And if this one is counted to me so that all my sins are punished and all God's wrath is removed. And this one is counted to me so that all my perfection and righteousness is provided. And along comes somebody and says, this doesn't exist. When in fact it does exist, the glory of Christ is halved. And that matters to me a lot. So chapter 1, verse 20. It is, it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. I just love that sentence. That was the text I used 29 years ago as my first sermon at my church. Just, just tell my people, here's why I'm here. With my body, whether I live or whether I die, I want one thing to happen. Christ be magnified. And the word there for honor, Christ be honored, is the same word over in Luke 146 where Mary says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And I just point that out because I, I like that idea of magnifying the Lord, not like a microscope, but like a telescope, making Christ's cross look like what it really is, look like the galaxy it is. So what preaching ought to do is make the cross and, and the Christ of the cross and the effects of the cross and the dynamic of the cross look like the, like the galaxy that it is. And so if waves come along that go right to the center and start pulling away glories of the cross, I get exercised because I'm going to meet him very soon. Very soon. And I hope that with some measure of authenticity, I will be able to say, I tried to teach and preach and counsel and father and husband and do everything to make you look great and not to diminish your glory in any way. The heart of the glory of God in Christ, as you know, reaches its climax at the cross. Second Corinthians 4, 4 goes like this. It is the gospel. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? The gospel of the glory of Christ. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ is the image of God. So the gospel, the gospel is the gospel of the glory of Christ, which I take to mean that when the gospel starts narrating the kind of person he is, the death he died, the resurrection he rose, it's talking about glorious things. And we should do everything in our power to to make that glory look as bright and full as it is. And so 
I am driven by that passion to talk about the imputation of the righteousness of, of Christ. So the ultimate impulse of this, this message and this 10-year preoccupation with the doctrine of justification is that I think the glory of Christ is being diminished by virtually all the contenders with the historic understanding of the doctrine of justification and that the Reformation got it basically right and they were all on the same page on this. They didn't have to divvy themselves up among, among denominations. They, they were all in the same place. So, preaching the justification undiminished for the sake of an undiminished Christ and an undiminished glory and an undiminished cross and an undiminished gospel. I mentioned three ways that it's diminished and then we'll tackle them and this will be the way the, the rest of the message is outlined. Um, it's diminished, the, the work of Christ and the glory of Christ and the cross of Christ in these challenges are being diminished because one of Christ's great achievements is being denied. Namely, that he provided a perfection that gets counted as mine. That's simply being denied by many. You don't need it. If you have forgiveness of sins, you don't need that. All you need is forgiveness of sins. You don't need anybody's righteousness. The whole category is not biblical. You don't need it. So that's number one. A great achievement that Christ performed is being denied. Um, the deficiencies and defects of the human soul that are meant to be remedied by that achievement go languishing. So this is my pastoral concern. Then I'll, I'll get to this near the end to show how practical this is as you deal with souls. I, I talk to these people and I... When I, when I try to describe to them that if you lose Christ's righteousness, the imputation of that righteousness, our being counted righteous in Him, with His being counted as ours, something needy in the human soul doesn't get dealt with. And they always say, no, 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 no. You don't need that. All you need is, is the forgiveness of, of sins and the, and the removal of the wrath of God. And what more would you want? I'll get there as to why that is so practically sad to do that. And, and the third diminishing uh, is that the aim of our charge, Paul says, is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, faith unfeigned. First Timothy 1 Timothy 1.5, the aim of our charge is love. And we all know in Galatians 5, 6, that neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is of any avail. But faith, working through love, faith in something, working through love. So love is the great outcome of the Christian doctrine. So what happens to that goal if you begin to blur the line between the ground of it and what if it, the faithful living out of love, starts to become the support of God being totally for you? When in fact, God being totally for you in Christ is the ground for that fruit. 
what, what begins to happen? You shoot yourself in the foot. You shoot yourself in the heart. The very thing that you are trying to lift in importance, namely love, social action, environmentalism, global change, will die. Because you've tried to make it foundation. You've tried to make it more than it is, and in making it more than it is, it will die. So for the very thing that so many of these guys are after, I'll stay where I am. For the very longing that we be a loving church, a longing that we be a socially engaged church, a longing that we be an environmentally sensitive church, a longing that we care about global issues as well as individual issues, for that very longing, I stay here. Because we've seen this. We've seen this 80, 90 years ago. Have we not been here before? Read the early liberal defections of the PCUSA or the Methodist Church of the UCC. Read the story from a hundred years ago as to what was being said. It's just all over again. New faces, new tricks of language, but so sad. So those are my three uh, diminishings. And now let's just tackle them. Uh, one at a time in the time we have left. The fullness of the glory of the gospel is diminished. The achievement of a perfect faith, a perfect love, perfect power, perfect wisdom, perfect obedience to his Father. Because of our union with him through faith alone is counted as ours. I want to defend that from Philippians for just a few minutes. And there's so many places we could go. So if you're still there in Philippians, why don't you look at chapter 2, verses 6 through 8 first. Here's the flow. Chapter 1, verse 20. I want in my body, whether by life or death, that Christ be magnified in everything. Me too. We keep reading on into chapter 2, and he he lifts up Christ here in chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, and he describes the obedience of Jesus in an unusual way. Verse 6, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, notice something really unusual here about his obedience there in verse 8. Being found in human form. So that's, that's the beginning of the incarnation. Being found in human form... Next, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Well, that's a short story of a life. Being found a human, he obeyed and died. That's very significant. Very significant. So in Paul's mind, when he's just kind of collapsing the story down into 
what are the glories here? Collapsed. God, equal with God, becomes man, in humility, obeys, even to the point of death. God raised him from the dead because of that faithfulness. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a, a name of every name. Now, I wonder if that rings any bells in your mind. That little summary of Jesus' life as he obeyed. In Romans chapter 5, verses 18 and 19, there are controversial words. I don't think they're that unclear. Let me read you Romans 5, 18 and 19. Therefore, Romans 5, 18, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one dikaiomatos, usually translated, one act of righteousness, leads to justification of life for all men. Verse 19. For, as by one man's disobedience, the many were appointed sinners. That's my verb translation. I think that's, that's the way the kathistemi word is consistently used throughout the New Testament. You make an appointment. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were appointed sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be appointed righteous. Now, the argument against this traditional understanding of verse 19 is that the one act of righteousness in verse 18 and the Obedience of verse 19 refer just to the death of Jesus. And therefore, there's no drawing attention to the fact that he lived a life of obedience in my place that I desperately need counted as mine. But if I read this against the backdrop of Philippians 2, where I, I hear Paul thinking out loud about the way he sums up the life of Jesus becomes man humbly is obedient to death. Then I hear Paul saw Christ's life beginning to end. That's obedience. That's obedience. That is one great dikaioma. And I think that's the way he's thinking here. Because of one man's disobedience, that disobedience gets counted as mine, and we're all fallen in him. And now, one man had to not just fall with one sin, but never fall with any temptation. And that sequence from beginning to end is totally successful in Jesus Christ. And therefore, we have a disobedient Adam. And we have a obedient Christ, and the one causes us to be counted sinners, and the other causes us to be counted righteous. Every step he took from the beginning of his life 
he took toward the cross. So if you start going back from the when 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 fellows say this to me, oh, I think the the obedience there is just the the last act of obedience on the cross. I say, starting when? Nine o'clock. How about before Pilate? Get slapped around and not retaliating. Is that part of it? Well, I guess. Okay. How about Herod? How about in the garden when he put the ear back on? And where? What? What obedience doesn't count here? This diminishing. This diminishing. Is very sad. So now we get to chapter three and we're back in Philippians. All that from chapter two, just to show that a backdrop of understanding his life as as a life of obedience from birth to death, from incarnation to crucifixion, really helps us understand Romans 519. Now, here he comes into chapter three. We're starting to get close to the really familiar verses. But before we get to 3.9, which is the big, big one, we really need to see the setup in verses 5 following. Paul is exulting, so to speak, in his former achievements as a Pharisee, a law-keeping Pharisee. He's going to call all of this dung, right, in just a minute. So let's see what the dung is. Verse six, sorry, verse five in the middle. As to law, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness in the law, blameless. Now, it's crucial here to see the word righteousness, because that's going to be the key word down in verse nine. And here it is, as to righteousness Literally, according to righteousness under the law, blameless. And it's parallel, notice, with according to zeal, a persecutor. So according to righteousness under the law, blameless. According to zeal, a persecutor. So the natural meaning here is his zeal is expressed in persecution. His righteousness is expressed in blameless behavior. So righteousness has its normal, usual meaning. How you behave when you're doing right things is not complicated. It really does have a simple, basic meaning of doing something according to a standard. God's standard, you do something according to God's standard, that's righteous. It's right and righteous. So here, along the standard, as he understood it, blameless. And now he gets to verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. So he counts his righteousness according to the law, which was blameless, as worthless and rubbish. That's very important to see. I, I, I was a Pharisee, 
and I knew how to toe the line and keep those commandments, and, and I was blameless, and I look upon that now as garbage. Verse 9, And be found in Him, in Christ, be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own. Now, that's clearly a reference back to verse 5 and 6. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from law, but that righteousness which comes through faith in Christ. Or if you wanted to take it here, I mean, there's a big argument about whether faith of Christ means Christ's faithfulness. I don't think that's what it means. If it meant that here, it would only help my cause, not hurt it. But I'm going to pass over that since it doesn't damage either way. I'm just going to take it traditionally, which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness of God that depends on faith. So the righteousness that he claims to have now in him is not the righteousness that he's counting as garbage. That is not his own. I mean, that's his own. He's getting rid of that. This righteousness, he says, he in some sense receives by faith in Christ. He has it being found in Christ. You see that phrase? Being found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own. That was what I was doing when I was trying to keep the law. I have a righteousness that is in him. Now, let's just make a few observations about this, this righteousness. One, it cannot mean verdict. I've got people who argue to me that the righteousness we have is not a lived out obedience counted as ours. It is simply the declaration in a courtroom that we are in a right status. And God can make that. He doesn't need any imputation stuff in order to do that. Just It's just a verdict. Righteousness means verdict. That won't work here. It won't work in the context. When you read verse 6, according to righteousness under the law. That's his dikaiosune. That's his righteousness. Righteousness means someone's behavior. In verse 6, it, verdict won't work here. It won't work to say not having a verdict of my own or not having the status of acquitted on my own. It is his verdict. It is his on his own. A verdict of acquitted would be his verdict. What Paul is saying is the record of his own behavior that he had up in verse 6 is worthless here. And therefore, the righteousness that he has in Christ is like that. It's like that. That's what righteousness means in this context. I need that. Only mine won't work. So I have to be in him. In him. And when faith attaches me to him, in him, God's righteousness in him is working for it. counts as mine now. It's the flow from 5 and 6 to 9 that make this work for me. Help me understand how this works. Another thing you can say about this righteousness is that it's not Paul's new spirit empowered behavior. 
the righteousness of verse 9. How many people today are saying that the righteousness we need, of course, is not old legalism. Self-reliant efforts to measure up. Oh, of course not. It's new, spirit-empowered obedience. That's what you need. That's your new righteousness. And of course, it's totally reliant on grace. So it's not like Roman Catholicism. That won't work here. It won't work. This is righteousness that is from God in Christ and not his own. And the the not his own there is not my own anything. Like, Like I've got my own spirit driven obedience here. He's saying, no, I don't. I am contrasting my old pursuit of the law, not with my new pursuit of the law by the Spirit. I'm contrasting the old pursuit of the law by trusting another, by trusting God's gift in Christ that I so desperately need. The most natural way to understand this righteousness here that we have uh, is the way he celebrated it in verse 8 of chapter 2. In other words, I'm, I'm drawing an arc back to chapter 2, verse 8. Being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And that is what I get in union with Christ in chapter 3, verse 9. So, Christ was perfectly obedient. I tried my best to be perfectly obedient. That's garbage. And in Jesus Christ, I have a righteousness that is counted now as mine that I can only have by faith alone. Now, Paul describes this in, what, five or six places? Let me just mention a few of them so that if you want to draw this out from Philippians, you can. Because I'm, I'm not going to go anywhere else but Philippians. Um, Romans 5.19, we've already seen. Appointed righteous because of one man's obedience. 2 Corinthians 5.21. In him we become the righteousness of God. God made him to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him... We might become the righteousness of God in him, in him, God's requirement of perfect righteousness is ours. Romans four, six, he imputes righteousness to us apart from works of the law, which is virtually the same as Romans three, 28 justified apart from works of the law. So this diminishing of Christ and of the cross and of justification by saying you don't need imputation of Christ's righteousness and it's not in the Bible, I regard as a great departure from the truth and from biblical faithfulness and a damaging to the church and a dishonoring to Christ. So that's the first diminishing. The second 
diminishing now. Here's the pastoral piece. What do you say to a person who comes to you and says, I find in my own relationship with God that forgiveness of sins is all that I need. I don't need any of that talk of imputed righteousness. Because if my sins are forgiven, then I am totally at peace with God and uh, this is superfluous. What you are insisting is an important part of the gospel. What do you, what do you say to that person? If they suggest, what, what could he possibly contribute to me if my sins are canceled? Why would there be any needs in the church that forgiveness of sins couldn't supply? My response to that person is, don't be pastorally wiser than God. Because you can't imagine the state of a human soul that would respond to the imputation message and be rescued from suicidal lack of assurance when the offer of forgiveness was not helping but this message did who are you to say that God did not know the multifaceted pain of the human heart better than you do and did not provide in the cross aspects of glory, aspects of provision that those hearts will need that yours may not at the moment perceive as needing. Who do you think you are if God has provided it? I personally need it. Psychologically, pastorally, I need it. It You don't have to explain why. I mean, you, you guys are pastors. You know that you've tried this and this and this on on tormented souls. And this didn't work. And this didn't work. And this one hit home. This one went home. This one did it. Why? The first who should have. Because God has provided a, well, what image shall we use? A diamond here? And you just, you turn it all around and we're blind to some facets and, and another one. So, I, when, when, when the cross is diminished, when you rob, when you rob the cross of one of its achievements, namely the completion of a perfect righteousness that is then counted as yours through faith alone. When when that is taken away, pastorally, the church is going to be hurt. There are going to be psychological pains, psychological struggles with sin and lack of assurance that that doctrine, that truth was intended to touch and help and you won't have it in your arsenal. That's just one of the reasons why I hope you will stay with imputation. Lastly, the third diminishing, namely, the goal of everything is love. The goal of all of our ministry is love. We want to produce a loving people. We're not just about getting everybody... um, psychologically at peace with themselves and God. 
And then they fold their arms and sit in their little cubicles and enjoy peace with God. Let the world go to hell. No. We want churches ready to lay down their lives for the world. We want them just scattering all over the place, being the most radical, crazy, countercultural, risk-taking lovers on the planet. Yes, that's what we want. And, and you've got to decide what doctrines can you give up and still hope that that might happen. And I'm arguing that what's happening when you give up imputed righteousness is that a vacuum is created and it just starts to fill with our behavior. And one of those big behaviors is love. And thus love is moved from its fruit status to its foundation, which it was never intended to be. And therefore it rots. It may take 80 years. I mean, name the mainline denominations. Name them. They are desperately, desperately, desperately trying to change the world. They have no gospel anymore. The cross is gone. The Bible is gone. The supernatural is gone. All they have left is, we're supposed to love people. We're supposed to love people. And guess what? They're dying. They're not evangelizing the world. That's for sure. And the little bit of social ethic that's holding them all together is gone. The roots are cut. They're air flowers. That 80 years is not a long time. I just don't want us to go there. I'm not going to be around. Some of you will be. And I just would like to be part of the trumpet call for the sake of love, for the sake of the world, for the sake of the radical engagement with the issues of our time, the hardest ones of all, the city. The urban brokenness of my city that nobody has answers for. This issue is huge. I'd love to talk about Wilberforce here. Wilberforce wrote one book. Real Christian. Something like that. And, and the book was a plea for justification. It was a plea in his day that the moralization of the Christian view would destroy itself. And that's what's happening. And, and, and it has such big flowery spokesmen today. Of course, if you talk global effects and love, and it all sounds absolutely right, because it is. But it's being gutted from underneath because in the back pocket are the denials. They don't ever get quite brought out, the denials of imputation. So, very simply, um, the, the third diminishing is the diminishing of love, the diminishing of justice, the diminishing of our radical engagement with the world. And it's so paradoxical because the very people that are most effective in undermining the historic doctrine of justification are the people who are living for those very causes. So paradoxical and so tragic. So, brothers, in the ministry, I am pleading with you that if all of this has been kind of, whoa, I, I thought it was pretty obvious, you know. 
I'm glad you do. And I hope you stay there. And I hope you stay there. But if you've been pushed around on this, if young guys are coming to you and feeding you stuff and wondering where you stand, I just want you to know you've got partners who believe that the old ways of Christ not only becoming a glorious substitute for our punishment to absorb the wrath of God and cover our sins, but also a glorious substitute perfection and righteousness and obedience. And both of these enjoyed by union with Him through faith alone, producing a life of radical love still holds. It's still biblical. So, Father, as we take this to heart and ponder these things, I plead with you. That you would help us to see what's really there in the Word of God. And I ask that we would be faithful in helping our churches because there are people who are desperately in need of understanding and living in and savoring the doctrine that we are justified, counted righteous with an imputed alien righteousness of Jesus through faith alone and not through faithfulness of obedience. They're desperately in need of this. And so grant that we would preach it well. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.